Welcome to Permaculture Tonight. We've got an incredible episode tonight on the podcast. Dr. Elaine Ingham and I are discussing my book. We talk about the nitrogen cycle and uh, it's a serious learning experience for me and I think it will be for everyone who listens because most people were taught the nitrogen cycle incorrectly. Uh, it is not simple like the carbon cycle. It is incredibly complicated. So I invite you all to join us and at the parts where we're discussing diagrams, um, I will put that up on my Facebook and you can go find it on my Facebook um, because uh, the images are really interesting. They're also will be on my Twitter. I already posted one of them on permaculture123 on Twitter. And yeah, I'll, I'll put the images up. It's, it's really exciting. They'll end up in the Permaculture Student 2. And Dr. Lane Ingham is working with me very closely as she did it on the first volume on this volume and making sure that we're making the connections, the step steadily towards a more correct understanding of soil and soil life. Because what we have now is just stories being passed down and we'll get into that right now. So here we go. by which mother nature does that you're going to do incorrect management of your fields so you know taking folks from hey guys this is what you've been taught but this is incorrect so the thing that i that that is that i've noticed is that the formulas and the reactions that are online are disembodied from the actual context on the ground and, and, and rooted examples. And for me, and I was looking at, at your example and, and I had to just play with it. And it was like my way of writing it down, color coding it and everything. And I had to be like, all right, now what would that actually be? What's the chemical equation that goes along with this? Yeah. And in those chemical equations, they neglect to tell you that the only way this can happen ever is by having enzymes do the catalysis of that that interaction it is not something that can occur well okay maybe if we wanted to have a nuclear explosion go off okay but most of us would not like that so if you want to have these things happening in your soil you have to have life you've got to have the right sets of organisms there to do it it doesn't just happen by itself and that's what you lose when you just have the chemical equations. Oh, great, we've got it all balanced. How many hydrogens and oxygens and nitrogens on this side of the equation is compared to that? That's what I learned in school, and that means meaningless. Yeah, it's because you can't do that. If all you do is get your nitrogen, your oxygen, your hydrogens, and mix them all together, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to be able to make nitrogen in a form that your plant can utilize. You have to have the biology in there to do that job. I think some of the some of the the names too, the fact that it's um, some uh, like nitrifying, nitrifying bacteria, nitrification, those make sense to me because they're compartmentalized. But when it's uh, like a modification, that's a bundle of a huge amount of activity. Um, yeah. And, like and you that. have to have the right conditions for the organisms to actually do that. Yeah. And then yeah. there's this attitude that this is happening in a nicely 
uniform. You've got the same number of bacteria at every teeny tiny point in the soil and it's all nice uniform. Everything is doing, no, no, does not work that way. Here's your root. Here's where nitrogen fixation is occurring and it's in this little place and then maybe another and another and another but out here totally different things are happening you're not fixing nitrogen over here and the error that soil scientists have made that nitrogen fixation occurs in root systems and it releases nitrate no it doesn't it does not do that at all the plants going to get proteins or amino acids from that nodule none of that is escaping out into the soil things that are going on inside that nodule none of that fixed nitrogen immediately goes out into the soil uh-uh-uh-uh-uh and the so plant they've has got to it break so down. completely wrong the plant has to break down uh, Carol yep. Depp talked about this she measured the uh, the soil and she she measured it during growth she measured it during fruiting and then she um, let it break down and when it was incorporated and broken down that's when the nitrogen went up and she said the nitrogen was concentrated and focused in the seeds and pods yep so we literally could lay down seed and then um, then till it under right after it sprouts like right when it's when it's most vibrant and that would be fixing nitrogen right that would be releasing, releasing nitrogen in the form of NH4. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because it's, it's not... already fixed nitrogen. We're just right. releasing the fixed nitrogen. Right. Yeah. Right. So terminology here is really critical to say what you actually mean. Mm -hmm. um, when you've got a seed that's high, the wide seed in ratio that's in a seed, seed seeds, the germ of a seed has a carbon and nitrogen ratio somewhere around eight to one up to 10 to one. So it's all the stored yummy stuff for that plant to put out cotyledons and to put out root systems and get all of that started. But uh, the seed coat has a seed and ratio typically up around a hundred. So if you take a seed with intact seed coat and the germ, seed and ratio is about 30. So what are people doing? Because uh, I'm learning now about the fact that uh, nitrogen creates the protein that most animals uh, eat. So when people are doing feed for animals and they're removing that seed coat from the feed, are they like seriously uh, removing a lot of uh, a lot of protein for their animals? No, because the seed coat is mostly very complex carbon structures. Oh, interesting. So it's insoluble sometimes. It uh, usually is, and that's why you got to chew away at a seed in order to try to break that down so when it goes into your digestive system, the microorganisms can attach to those surfaces and start breaking it down into bacterial and fungal biomass in right. the digestive system of the part, annual. And this is part yeah. of the reason why we nixtamalize corn, right? Is it removes the, the, that, that covering and then changes it into a, a more readily digestible form. Yeah, but is that uh, seed coat important to the way the digestive system of any animal functions? Yes, it is. Okay. That's bulk. That's what allows that movement of materials through the digestive system. You remove all of that, and you're going to have the most constipated cows you've ever seen. Uh -uh. 
And the way it usually works, same thing in human beings, is it's like Crohn's disease. And I, I think so much of Crohn's disease is actually just a symptom of we've removed all the roughage from our diet. And we're feeding ourselves proteins and amino acids and, um, you know, glutens and things that are not very complex. And so your digestive system, you know, you're putting all this stuff down here and it's not moving anywhere because you don't have any bulk. You don't have any roughage in there. So it accumulates, it backs up, you start feeling uncomfortable, things aren't good. And when your digestive system finally lets loose, total constipation and then diarrhea. And you see exactly the same thing in cows where they can't do a bowel movement. What comes out are just these pellet-like rock material that falls on the ground. And then for the next two or three days, their manure, their bowel movements are just slop. It's just on the, you know, when it splats. Sick cows, not healthy. Well, human beings have the same problem um, because we think the only thing that's important to our health is protein, 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 paleo diet, eat steak and nothing else. Human beings have never eaten a diet like that, never, ever. So, we need that seed coat in there. We need to be feeding that completely balanced diet that includes roughage, which is seed coat. It's the stems of plants. It's, you know, you take a bite of celery, celery and you've got all that juicy stuff in there, but you have to eat the strandy stuff in there too because that's what's going to move the that nice juicy part of the stock you got to have the rough part too to make things balance properly in your digestive system. That so this F awesome. emphasis on you got to feed your animals enough protein. No, there's a limit. You shouldn't be going over that limit or you're making your cows sick. It's like we used to feed cows corn all the time so they would get lots of fat, well-marbled meat extremely bad for human beings to be eating that all of the time. We don't need that amount of fat in that form in the food that we're eating. But there's so little recognition of, of that in university programs and their nutrition programs. They are, they have not moved into the 21st century yet. I think part and, of it is the, the fact that there's, a, there's basic disconnections that are now built in to science. And yep. like this nitrogen cycle, I'm, I'm really excited because I feel like we're going to, I'm going to be able to get, together we're going to be able to get this to kids and they're not going to have another form of this nitrogen cycle that's understandable. They're going to have yep. things I keep finding online where it's like, what about that, that, and that? And then you, the you forgot the about cycle. all of these things that have to be in here to explain why this works. And that's why I contacted you because I was totally flabbergasted. I was like, and 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 for me as a teacher, it it, it like um, sends like shivers down my spine when yeah. I'm like, wait, what are you guys doing over here? You're supposed to be teaching children, or or adults or professionals. That's the spectrum. It's it's all important. Every step of the way is important, and for you to not take it like serious 
you know, it, it, it just sends shivers down my spine. And so that's why I feel so grateful to have someone like you that can just dive in and be like, no, 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 let, let me explain. And, yeah. and, and we're gonna get this to these kids. It's like trying to teach somebody how to write and plop down a book in front of them and say, see this, <clears throat> write it right on your piece of paper, just write it like that. Yep. Without any explanation of you start at the top of the R and you come down and then you back up and you make the little flag on the other side that, you know, it's just, it's criminal to teach somebody that way. Um, without going into exactly how you do it and here's how you form the strokes and here's how you hold your pencil and here's all of those things. They're teaching the nitrogen cycle with no mechanism behind how it actually works. I feel like that's the way we teach everything almost. Like uh, It's like how does the economy work to a high schooler? Magic. Yep. You put your money in the bank and it does wonderful stuff. And, and then you can withdraw it whenever you want. Wait a minute, that's your money helping somebody else make money, and you need to make more money from that interaction than you're getting. That's the story so, of the soil too, isn't it? <laughs> uh-huh, yep. So I think it's really important in this to emphasize that, that in the past, um, soils people have not understood why these mechanisms work. Why nitrate appears in the soil? Nitrate, ammonium, ammonia. Um, why phosphorus blows off as a gas? Why do, are these really nasty acids produced? All of that stuff has just been well. That's how your soil is. Your parent material is acidic. Really? You want to go down there and measure it? It's not acidic at all. It's alkaline, if it's anything. So we've been fed bullshit and it's time for that to stop. And it's until somebody finally comes along and says, wait, that makes no sense. When people go spelunking down into the depths of Carlsbad Tavern, do they end up with acid burns on their legs? Never happened. And people will say, there's no oxygen when you get below about two or three feet. Great. When's the last time those people going down into caves and going cave exploring had to wear oxygen, you know, the masks like you have to wear when you're doing scuba diving? There's plenty of oxygen down there. As long as you got an air passageway, a hallway, there's plenty of oxygen down there. So what is this BS that we're getting that you go below a couple inches in the soil and it's anaerobic? Yeah, we've compacted the soil and we've imposed that damage. It ain't soil, it's dirt. And you certainly aren't gonna have any nitrogen cycle occurring down below that compacted layer. The only nitrogen part of the nitrogen cycle you'll have is to take any of your soluble inorganic forms of nitrogen and release them as an anaerobic gas. So, Thinking about the nitrogen cycle, I was just thinking about um, about the 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 anaerobic and aerobic uh, sides to it. Um, could we also somehow represent the pH difference? Do they coincide? Um, here's where we get into that problem of soils. People will take soil samples, they mix all that soil together, uh-huh. <clears throat> add water mix it around and stick an electrode in there and get one number. 
which is absolute, again, bullshit. Right, right. And so pH is going to be varying massively as you're up next to the root system. And then as you go out from that root system, pH, you know, think of it kind of as a, wow. a, road, a road network in any state that you're living in. You know, what are the number, what's the, uh, you know, what's a comparable thing? What's the pH right next to the road? It's going to be totally different from 10 feet away. So and you go out beyond the, that human influence and the pH is going to be something completely different. So while so, these things happen at a certain pH, it's impossible to really know from a soil sample what's happening because it's either a moment right here or it's an average of a moment <laughs> of a million billion moments uh -huh. um, when you think about okay. a, a teaspoon of soil and within that teaspoon of soil we've got 600 million individual bacteria all of which are controlling the pH around their bodies what's the pH right there versus what's the pH right there. Completely different. And it may go, um, TG and Sexstone have a couple papers out on this where they made micro electrodes where they could go in and measure the pH at microsites, true microsites. So in this- Without disturbance. And very little disturbance. So they could insert it, read the pH. So here the pH is uh, 6.5. And right there the pH is nine. Whoa. And there the pH is 7.5, and there it's 4.2, and there it's, and every place they went, the pH was wildly different. Uh -huh. there, was, there was no uniformity. If you understand the consequence of these microorganisms doing these metabolic jobs result in a pH of 6.5, then you can start to understand why this is 6.5. But you move over here, and this is a six page, uh, a pH of eleven, because these organisms are operating here, performing these functions, which result in the release of a lot of alkaline products. So that pH reading you get on the soil chemistry test is a sum of all those things mixed together. So, so what does it mean? You're, so when you're testing to figure out where the pH aggregate is at and where we are with the nitrogen cycle, do you simply use the soil life as the indicator? That's what you have to do because Excellent. there's nothing else that's gonna be telling you that level of heterogeneity, micro scale heterogeneity that's present in your soil. So, you know, think of that root system. There's a paradigm shift. Think of the root system yeah. growing through the soil, and right here, that root is putting out these kinds of exudates. But right there, a micrometer away, it's putting out a different set of, my, of exudates. And another millimeter later, it may well be putting out a whole different bunch of exudates. That's incredible. And so here's what causes the heterogeneity within that soil. You get a root system growing through, and the things happening at the tip are completely different functions than the things happen a little bit further. And you start getting root hairs coming out, and it's completely different once again. 
And you because the sedimentary layers back. are all different, and the, and it should be different in every layer. Exactly, it makes and so that's much the sense. joy. That's the that's the wow. This is so cool that we get it. I have to get out to everybody to get them to understand that soil is not like one, a block of brick or something, and everything is going on all the same. It's just exactly like a human civilization, but at micro scale. Right, and 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 it's more calibrated than a human civilization would be, you know, to its its outer and inner. I, I, well, it, without disturbance, it seems to find a more harmonious balance than human civilizations do. Right. You can, and yeah. through, six, through succession, those organisms are working out that balance, although the fact that they're changing the soil, so different plants will grow instead of what was here, and then they'll change some more, so this other set of plants, and, that, and we go through that whole process of succession. And it's all an interaction of the plants that are there changing the biology and soil, which then means these. So who's really in control? Chicken and egg. Uh, The control came from whatever organisms got into that sterile dirt to begin with, and they set the stage for everything else happening. So uh, typical scientist, I've got to always go back to what's most important, as if the seeds that arrived later didn't have a great deal to do with the direction that that soil actually went. Wow. This is awesome. Yeah. And it's wonderful watching light bulbs go on, but (laughs) see where more people have to understand this. This has to get communicated to children. This has got to get out there to the teachers in the schools that this is the most fun place for kids to go and play around try putting on these kinds of materials or those kinds of material plant these plants or those plants and let's look and see what changes in the soil what happens they, those teachers all need microelectrodes so they can go in and be measuring um, soil ph at all these microsites and showing kids how different that is it's dynamic and I, and, yeah. I, and I think that's the thing that um, we were talking about earlier about like teaching uh, you know, in the 80s and, and, and before, you know, teachers were not dynamic on the whole. They were, they were fixed. They were stagnant, stale. They were this portrait, a picture. And we revered the picture and we didn't argue with it. Um, but I think that we have dynamic, I think, I mean, permaculture really is an invitation, I, I, I think, to seeing the world in a dynamic way. And it's connecting and opening the door for all these dynamic sciences yeah and it's i, I it's thrilling it's absolutely yeah. thrilling exactly so let's go to nitrogen fixation right because um as that roots grow grows through the soil it's the root hairs that have the infection sites or the nitrogen fixing bacteria that have to be in association with a plant. Mm-hmm. So rhizobium has to have a specific set of chemical compounds on the surface of that root hair, which allows recognition between the plant and that single bacterium, that rhizobium. But aren't there um, independent bacteria that also um, fix atmospheric uh, nitrogen? completely different mechanism 
Totally. I, but that's why I left it as biological fixation. I put plant and soil life fixation, but then I was thinking that that might be confusing because it seems like they're separate, and I don't want the people to think that plants are doing it. Cause and I would, I would, uh, I would probably put it as nitrogen fixation, um, you know, symbiosis with plants and free living nitrogen fixing bacteria. So there are two categories where you've got to have the plant to provide the environment for the bacteria to grow and make the anaerobic conditions that they require to actually fix nitrogen. The nodules. Versus, yeah, the nodules. Versus free living nitrogen fixers that do not require that direct association with the plant. Now, the plant's still involved, but it's not as close an association. Oh, the bacterium, really? yeah, the bacterium is going to form the conditions where the center of that colony goes anaerobic. You can't fix nitrogen unless you're in anaerobic conditions. Right, so it's a breakdown of the plant? It can be exudates that the plant is putting out there. It wow. can be dead cells of the plant. It can be other organic matter. We can have Wait, nitrogen fixation going on in a manure pile. Is that what happens when we prune the branches off of uh, a nitrogen fixing tree and then the roots die off? And the, and is that the that, so so then it's a it's a it's a cycle with with legumes where we're building up the the in an anaerobic association we're building up the nitrogen inside the plant and then when the plant breaks down it's the free living nitrogen bacteria that. Bring. It generally, if you're dealing with plant material, dead roots or leaves that have come down to the surface of the food the soil and the they're already high in nitrogen, yeah. nitrogen fixing bacteria will not um, do their job in that environment. Okay, already so they're breaking down, they're decomposition, and then there's the ammonia release into the atmosphere, which becomes no. What 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 is it? Hold on. Let's let's kind of I I think. We kind of need to back up and have you go through this step by step. Okay, because I know that when, when there's decomposition, that N2 is released. N2 gas is not typically released directly from the soil. N2 gas is something that is going to occur once ozone and sunlight, UV, are acting on the anaerobic gases that are up in the atmosphere. So when ammonia is released as a gas, uh -huh. it goes up into the atmosphere and, and ozone and sun, UV will yeah. break that molecule apart and release. N2O also has to be worked on by ozone and UV light in order to convert it into N2 gas. So should I keep that arrow in there from the organic nitrogen up to the atmospheric N2? And I would probably Put a second portion to that arrow so the first arrow that should be pointing upward into the atmosphere would be N2O and NH3 and then that arrow should go to N2 because it's only in the atmosphere with UV and ozone that those molecules get converted into N2 gas.
It's not something that comes out of the soil. And to gas, at least the, all the data I've ever read, and nitrogen gas from breakdown of products in the soil, N2 gas is not being released. Where people get confused is that in the atmosphere, of course, 75% of that atmosphere is N2 gas. Mm -hmm. When this moves into the soil and you get into an anaerobic condition or as oxygen is used up and CO2 is elevated, it's going to allow for the concentration of N2 gas. And so what's coming back out of the soil appears to be more concentrated in N2 gas, but that's because the oxygen was used up. Uh. CO2 is used up. And so the gases being released from the soil are just more concentrated in all the other gases because oxygen is gone. Yeah, to the filter. Yeah. Something was used up and so concentration of everything else occurs. It's like in decomposition of organic matter. Bacteria and fungi are happily chewing on the carbon. And so you concentrate all the other nutrients. It's not like we got more nit nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium to come in from someplace else. No, we just took the carbon that was present and blew it off as CO2. Wow. That's what causes concentration of other nutrients in a compost pile. Wow, that's amazing. And, and, and why soil scientists don't go through that information and explain all of this is I've been and, beating on them for the last 40 years. And so th this is the reason why the whole humus conversation about humic acids and everything, instead of it being a stable state, they're saying it's smaller and smaller and smaller. So it becomes finer, uh, and, and as it becomes finer, does it, uh, does it allow, it, it, does it attach to those other, because I know that people say long carbon chains form and they, they trap all these other things onto the chain. Is that where the phosphorus, nitrogen, they, that's where they attach? That's one of the places that mm -hmm. they will attach. Um, any surface of sand, silk, clay, rocks, pebbles, they are all surfaces where adsorption of those ions in soil can become attached. But they have to be free in the soil in the form, in an ionic form, positively charged or negatively charged. Salts, basically, is what we would call that. So there has to be a surface that they get attached to. And then it usually takes biology to make that attachment a long-term situation. If you have no biology in the mixture, you've got lots of sand, silk, clay, rocks, and pebbles, lots of ions running around. Work at the EPA and some of the data published back in 1990 to 95 <clears throat> shows that those ions will attach to those surfaces, but without organisms present to make that at a permanent attachment, those ions will detach within a two week period of time and become free again in the solution. Something else attaches and then it's, and then something else attaches. And then, and just, again, look at the dynamics going on there. Huh. How does that affect your plant? I don't think it really affects your plant much but it affects our understanding of the soluble inorganic concentration 
of these different nutrients in soil because they're constantly exchanging with these inert non-biological sites as soon as you get some glue in there bacteria yeah or a little fungi to some extent also make glues so um, you're going to get that uh, permanent attachment once you have the bacterium fungi making those glue layers on the surfaces of everything I did not know that fungi also made glues yep <laughs> yep for a long time um, the attitude was that um, only bacteria made glues and now we know better Okay, so going back to, all right, so I feel like, man, I feel like the nitrogen cycle is, is probably the most complicated part of the book so far. Probably, yeah, because it awesome. incorporates so many of the other processes that you've been talking about, you know, single things happening here's this interaction here's this other interaction here's this other interaction now let's put all of this stuff together to really understand the nitrogen cycle because it incorporates all of that stuff you have to add understand all of that other stuff in order to really get the nitrogen cycle right so into gas in the atmosphere Mixture with the other gases, it diffuses into the soil, and so we've got N2 gas running around in the air spaces in that soil. We have to have the, for the symbiotic nitrogen fixation, we have to have a root system with root hairs. The interaction with the rhizobium occurs on the root hair. The rhizobium can now grow an infection thread up to the main roots. And when those bacteria from that infection thread hit the phloem and the xylem in the main roots, that causes those bacteria to produce hormones that force the plant to send massive amounts of sugar into that root hair. Massive amounts of sugar going into that root hair, the root hair starts to swell because of that uh, additional liquid that sugar solution that's now in the root system and of course the rhizobium bacteria just go bananas and start growing really really fast producing billions and billions of rhizobium bacteria so as that root as that nodule as that root hair expands into the nodule that whole inside of that nodule is packed with bacteria and of course as they're all growing fast they're using up oxygen. So the middle of the nodule becomes anaerobic, which is now the cue for the nitrogen fixing bacteria to actually produce the nitrogen fixing genetic material. The enzymes are made. Any nitrogen gas that's diffusing into the inside of that nodule will now get pulled apart and stuck into the structure of the sugars coming from the plant and change those sugars into amino acids. That's the difference between a sugar and an amino acid. 
is that that sugar gets an NH2 molecule bonded to it by the activities, the enzymes that the bacteria produce. And now we've got an amino acid. Just fixed nitrogen, we've got an organic form of nitrogen. And an amino acid is a protein, right? Amino, amino acids uh, bonded one to each other makes a protein. All right, all right. I'm getting there. So, good. <laughs> It, the amino acids are the precursors to proteins. Okay. So the simplest protein is two amino acids stuck together. Right. Com and so, complex so, proteins will be a couple thousand amino acids stuck together. Right. And that's why people, uh, when they take supplements and they take, you know, they're taking liquid aminos and stuff like that, it's a more digestible form of pre, basically like pre-protein, right? Yeah, it's um, the form that's going to be produced inside your digestive system for you to take those nutrients up across your um, cell, your uh, digestive system wall. So inside our digestive system, we have to have these bacteria and fungi that are pulling apart the complex proteins, them. releasing the amino acids, so we can just take up the nutrients that we require. So it's kind of the you know opposite process in our digestive systems as to what these bacteria are doing in the soil, making the more the longer and longer chain uh, proteins. So speaking of the infection thread, I have come across uh, our our buscular our buscular fungi people are like there's a certain group of people raving about our buscular fungi and it seems like they're just talking about the form of the infection threat uh, and how it looks like an arbor tree and they find it in most of the have you know what it's, I'm talking about I, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about it's not it's truly it is it is not an infection thread when we're talking about fungi because infection thread oh, requires right, right, right. individual bacteria or individual organisms growing in a line, a thread going together. Fungi don't grow that way. Now, here's um, the plant is putting out exudates to encourage the spore of that mycorrhizal fungus to germinate and start to grow. And it doesn't matter if you're endo or ecto or arbucoid or ericoid or what kind of mycorrhizal fungus you are. The plant puts out the specific foods, sugars, to get that spore to germinate and start to grow. The, the uh, fungal the hypha that grows out, which some people incorrectly call an infection thread, it's not an infection thread, it's a hypha. So it grows, it follows along the concentration gradient of that sugar, finds the plant. It's gonna move in between the cell walls of that uh, root until it comes across the infection site. And when it finds that infection site, which is the same type of interaction as rhizobium has with root hairs. Okay, great, this is the connection. Yep. Then that allows that fungal hypha to move through the cell wall of that root cell and start to form the arbuscule in between the cell wall and the cell membrane of that plant root cell. There's your arbuscule. Okay, and so are they? Are they just? Um, 
a certain classification of endomycorrhizae? The ones that form arboscules are um, one type of endomycorrhizal fungus, yeah. Yeah, just because I saw these things online where the, you know, I, I always, it just, you know, kind of always triggers me when someone's like, this is the only fungi you'll ever need to know for farmers. And we, and it's like, I'm like, eh, what are you talking about? I haven't heard anyone else talk about this, but you know, so I'm you, glad to get the insight. You start listening to some of the stuff that Mike Am Amaranthus has produced in his uh, ads and his sales information, and he makes it sound like mycorrhizal fungi do everything. And of course they don't. Absolutely not the case, but he's a salesman trying to sell his product. And so get beyond the hype people. Any salesman, you ought to really listen to them with a big grain of salt. Take that whole entire carton of Morton salt and just dump it on there. <laughs> Because it's bullshit. He, he made me angry when he made those ads that made it sound like you don't need any other organism in your soil to do this work. Yeah. Mike, well, but Elena got to sell product. It'll come back to bite you, Mike. It'll come back to bite you sooner or later when people realize that no, mycorrhizal fungi perform these functions. And they're great at doing those functions. But what about non-mycorrhizal plants? How do they manage to grow them? And in fact, mycorrhizal fungi are detrimental to non-mycorrhizal plants. So again, you know, and, when and people want to get all... would be actinobacterial? Yep. Yes, so the brassica family. Right. Excellent. Right. So... Well, something that we talked about was the that um, that the actinobacterial uh, well, the actin uh, actinobacteria eat fungi, right? Or was that there when you go when conditions become anaerobic in the soil? Ah, okay. Then the fungus can't protect itself anymore. Its cell walls start to break down through just the internal problems. Fungi have aerobic enzymes. Once it goes anaerobic, those enzymes can't function properly. And so that'll start to digest the cell wall of the fungus, which means actinobacteria can, woohoo, look at this free food. We could never touch it before because of this cell wall that was just so nasty. Now the cell wall has all kinds of holes in it. <sighs> and they just suck the internal contents out of those dying fungi. Huh. But it's, it's not, you know, so it's like predator-prey interactions. When a lion kills a deer or an antelope, uh, yeah, it's eating the antelope, but it's not like eating it while it's still alive. Right. It's a different sort of situation. So, so I think what we, I want to do something now, now that I'm really getting my teeth into this, I want to do an arrow up and down and then color code it so it's a spectrum of color and on one side I want aerobic and on the other side I want anaerobic. And then not as much as a cycle, I want a list of what can happen or what happens at certain levels, certain thresholds, you know. So it's like you go above 
maybe 7.5 or, or, or 8 or 9, and then the actinobacteria can uh, attack uh, the, the dying fungi or the weakened fungi and yep. stuff like that because then, then that's a playbook. They're yeah. like, oh, yeah, well, we can't, you know, it's like that's dying because of this, and it's like there's no this because of that. And... That'd be a cool table to put together. That would be really fun. If you want to take first crack at it, and, and then I'll go ahead me. and look at it. And go, Ooh, here's this little picky detail, and here's this other little. P- <laughs> yeah. And uh, and make sure that everything's getting stuck together correctly. I'm um, gonna it. have to be really careful about what the measurement is you're doing on that arrow. Mm-hmm. Are you talking carbon dioxide as the concentration that you're talking about, or are you talking oxygen? Ooh. Well. Because they are kind of flip sides one of the other. As you elevate CO2, usually it's because oxygen is going down. So. Oh, so they're corollary or the opposite? Oh, yeah. They're correlated, definitely. So which measurement or, you know, it's almost like, do you want to do one where it's CO2 and another one almost exactly the same, but it's oxygen. So as oxygen goes up, we start to see things. The other, the flip side is as oxygen decreases, or oh, we CO2 could do on this both. side and oxygen on that side. Yeah, we could have it go both, uh, both directions from a center point. So have fun working that one out. Boggles my mind a little bit, but you'll have fun with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I have to go. Uh, I have to just start looking at all everyone else's examples and going wait, this makes no sense. And then I have to start like taking it apart. And that, you know, and that's why I, I just feel so grateful to, to have you, you know, helping and have you in, in this world, you know, um, because. <laughs> Nobody else has really put it together from a biological point of view. They're all still back in 1940s thinking mode. It's and, all, it's all they, like a, a code. They're like, oh, N plus this and this, this, this. And I'm like, but what is it really? <laughs> yeah. And it's why they've got most farmers completely snowed. Because the farmers look at all of that and it's like, oh, this is Greek. It's, it's even worse. It's alien inscriptions. There's nothing I can... Ah, I'm just going to call my agronomist up and have them tell me what to do. Because yep. I can't understand. Because it makes no sense. It really makes no sense should have seen me in an introductory soil science class every time my hand out went up i think the the professor just blanched oh no she's going to ask me a question again that i can't answer but i'm the professor and and i have to i have to know everything so drove him crazy because it was like wait that's not how biology works it you are talking about an equation where you've got nitric acid on this side and it becomes nitrate and hydrogen. If you had nitric acid in your soil, you wouldn't have roots because the nitric acid would destroy your roots. It solubilizes membranes. So do not tell me that this is what's going on in the soil. It's not possible. Uh, but th- this is where it's always been done. Well, uh, they're like the map works out. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. But it's not how it happens in soil. So 
all of those equations and all of those soil books are are, are absolutely bullshit. They talk, they talk, they'll talk about sulfuric acid, H2SO4 being present in soil. You can't have life if you've got hydrogen sulfide running around um, or high, you know, sulfuric acid running around in your soil. Sorry, your pH is going to be down at two, three. Life can't work under those conditions. So don't be putting in here that this this is the equation so that when your plant takes up SO4, hydrogen is going to be released into the soil and cause your soil to become more acidic. If that was true, then the Great Plains of the United States, <clears throat> where we have extremely concentrated root systems in that soil, how can that soil be alkaline? How can it have a pH of 9, 10, 11? If every time that plant takes up sulfur or phosphorus or nitrogen, it's releasing acid back into the soil. Or well, your soil has a lot of ability to buffer against uh, acids. Not for the last 12,000 years. I, I think it would have gone over the edge if what you're telling me is the truth. So it's not the truth. How does it actually work? Well, let's understand biology and then you understand how it actually does work. But we've been doing some massive damage because we did not understand how nutrients actually cycle in soil. We've been doing exactly the wrong thing. We've been fighting Mother Nature. And when you fight Mother Nature, who's going to win? Ultimately, who wins? Every time. Every time cannot fool with Mother Nature because she'll let you get away with it for a while. And then she's going to come along and go, bam! And it's all over. And she's not very forgiving at that point. So, could we wake up, please? So let's go back to our little root. And here we've got our root hair that's turned into a nodule. And inside that nodule, all this massive amount of bacteria growing that in the center, now we've got the nitrogen fixation gene being expressed. So into gas from the atmosphere is being converted into amino acids. Who gets those amino acids? Plant. No. No. How could it get to the plant? Oh, no, I thought you were talking about in the nodule when they combine the N2 with the sugars and it makes the amino acid inside the nodule. Yeah, who gets that amino acid? It is not the plant. Oh, it isn't? Because what's that amino acid surrounded by? Anaerobic conditions? Yeah, right in the middle it's anaerobic, but as all of those bacteria eat the amino acid that they need in order to stay alive, they need sugar, they need amino acid, they need all the nutrients. So those bacteria are going to, now as that center of that um, nodule has all the amino acid that it needs, those amino acids are going to start diffusing out. What what's what are the amino acids going to run into? More bacteria. So, so here we have waste. the aerobic bacteria consuming the amino acids. It's not until all of the bacteria inside that nodule are happy, full, don't need any more amino acids, that now we get a movement of amino acid back to the plant. Whoa, so it has to reach capacity. Exactly. Like a dam. Yep. Okay. And so it's not until that point. 
notice no nitrate is involved here. We are not talking nitrate production at all in any yeah. way. It's all amino acids. It's all organic. And so and when so, it consumes the amino acids, what does it release? What do they release? It grows more biomass. That's all. Those amino acids are great food for the bacteria to continue to multiply, continue to express more and it's not uh, released until decomposition. Pardon? So it's not released until decomposition. Yeah, so just, we're growing lots of bacteria in there. Those amino acids are going out. The plant is going to grow healthier because all of its um, tissues are getting all the nitrogen that's required. But now think about the fact that for, a, for any cell to be able to grow, it's not growing just on sugar, carbon, and amino acids. Those cells all have to have phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, boron, all of those other, where are those nutrients coming from? Other exited exchanges. So we've got to have um, those amino acids and sugars pumping out into that root system, growing bacteria and fungi, which the plant tells those bacteria and fungi what enzymes to make, because that plant wants more iron. That plant wants more uh, phosphate. That plant wants more magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium. So the plant's putting out the exudates to grow these bacteria and fungi around that root system. Those bacteria and fungi make the enzymes to pull from the crystalline material of rocks, sands, silts, clays, those nutrients that are in that not plant available form, all those nutrients in the mineral form, in the rocks, the sands, the silt, the clays, the pebbles, organic matter, if it's there. And so those bacterium fungi are pulling those nutrients into their bodies and storing those nutrients in their bodies in elevated concentrations. Protozoa nematodes have to come in from uh, outside that root system, eat those bacterium fungi, and release those nutrients in a plant available form. And the plant says, finally, took you long enough. Took you three seconds to do that. You're getting a little slow. <laughs> so the plant's getting exactly what it needs. And so that plant is going to be contributing those nutrients in exchange for the amino acids. The rhizobium bacterium inside that nodule are getting all the other nutrients that they require. Notice that there still is no nitrate involved here. There's no inorganic nothing going on here, basically. So in that nodule, it's getting new to all the other nutrients from the nutrients that the plant is taking up around that root system from the interaction of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, and other predators. So now your plant's growing happily. But let's say something came along and bit off part of that root system. Something came along and, and ate some, pulled off some of, your, of the uh, root hairs. The plant goes senescent in the fall, and so all that plant material, elevated in nitrogen, falls to the surface of the soil. There was some of the roots die, or maybe all of the roots die. And so all of that root system, elevated in nitrogen. And now it starts being decomposed. As the bacteria and fungi decompose that plant material, where does all that elevated nitrogen end up? 
bodies. Yeah, in the bacteria and fungi. So we're still not dealing with nitrate being released or ammonium or any inorganic form. It's still completely an organic interaction. When the predators of the bacteria and fungi decomposing the dead plant material, when they get eaten, they will release nitrogen as NH4. And that's the first time any of that nitrogen has appeared in an inorganic, soluble form. And that's a modification? That, yeah, it would be called a modification. It's not usually the, the equation that they publish in, in the soil science literature because we're going from an organic compound uh-huh. into NH4. So I hesitate to really call that ammonification. Okay. Because it's not a gas. We're talking about the solid, soluble, in solution, inorganic form of nitrogen, NH4. If we are in an acidic condition, if that NH4 is released into soil that has a pH below 7, it stays as NH4. It can be taken up by bacteria, it can be taken up by fungi. If another plant root is growing in the vicinity, it can be taken up by that plant root if that plant requires NH4 as a form of nitrogen. Weeds don't require NH4, so it's not going to be a weed. Hopefully it'll be a plant like strawberries or, you know, grasses or veggies or some, you know, brassica, something we want to grow. If that NH4 is released into the soil that has an alkaline pH, that means that soil has to be bacterial dominated because it's only the bacteria producing massive amounts of alkaline glues around their bodies that are gonna push a soil to a pH above seven. It's fungi that maintain soil pH lower than seven. Fungal dominated, they produce more organic acids, so the soil is gonna be slightly acidic. NH4 will be the predominant form of nitrogen usually. If we're in a bacterial dominated soil, alkaline glues, soil pH is going to be above 7. And under those conditions, those are the only conditions where nitrifying bacteria can express their nitrification genes. And so that's the only time where the, the, the pH goes above 7, or if it is already above 7, when ammonium is introduced, it turns into nitrite and then into nitrate. Right. Okay. And that's all a biological process. It's not like, oh, NH4 is going to turn in magically to NO2 and then NO3. Uh 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 uh. You've got to have nitrifying bacteria, and they must be expressing their nitrification genes. That only occurs in alkaline conditions. So they're pulling the hydrogens off that nitrogen. The NH4 is not being taken up by the bacterium. 
what those nitrifying bacteria want is the hydrogen. So they're ripping the hydrogens off and then they're going to replace those hydrogens with oxygen. So NH4 goes to NO2. And then a different kind of nitrifying bacterium is going to put one last oxygen. And that those nitrifying bacteria are making energy, they're making ATP from ADP through that process in the cytochrome system where they're removing the electrons so that they can make energy. And so the final product is NO3. So when we've got NO3 in the soil, the organisms that can take that up are bacteria, fungi, and root systems of plants. So what's the balance? Do you have more fungi? Do you have more bacteria? But remember, back to the heterogeneity situation, we don't have all of the soil uniformly fungal dominated. We don't have all of the soil uniformly bacteria. Right here we may have bacteria, but right here we have a little territory that the fungi, and then this is mostly bacteria, but that's fungal territory, and that, that's bacteria, and that's fungal, and that's And I'll look along the root system. This part of the root system may be bacterial dominated, but this part is fungal. And then, then this is a different bacteria, and this is a different fungus, a different bacterium. So what's the pH, how, what's the balance of nitrate and ammonium as you go along that root system. It's going from nitrate to ammonium to nitrate to ammonium, ammonium, ammonium. Who's in control of the form of nitrogen that the plant's gonna get? It's the plant. The plant's setting the pH because it's calibrating it through the uh, fungi and bacteria. Based, based on the exudates that the plant is putting out. So, so I have it here that ammonium, nitrate, and nitrite all can be used by plants. Um, but isn't it there, a, yeah, isn't it a, is a spectrum? And wouldn't it also have to, I mean, and I'm guessing here, but wouldn't it also depend on the time of year or the season of the life of the plant? The plant needs different things yeah. at different times of the year. So most of the time, early in the spring, when those first exudates come out, they're mostly bacterial exudates because what those plants need is vegetative growth. And you push vegetative growth in most plants, but not all. So look out for those, those people are gonna go, oh no, mango doesn't work like that. Okay, mango's weird. So <laughs> <laughs> most plants, safest to say it that way, most plants re require NO3 to push vegetative growth. They Right at first, that plant needs to be putting on leaves. It needs to be putting on branches. It needs to get everything up there and push vegetative growth. So early in the springtime, you're gonna see more bacterial foods. Most trees, most shrubs, most grasses, it's not gonna be just bacterial food. Again, it's balanced to what the plant requires. And also think about through that wintertime period or through the dormant period, what grew better than the other groups were the fungi. So in that initial fun, uh, springtime period, there is more fungi than perhaps the plant requires. So most of the exudates are gonna be bacterial foods. Up that bacteria so they can get the nitrate, ammonium balance that they need. But as that plant goes into reproductive mode, 
doesn't want vegetative growth anymore. It's going to put all of its energy into producing um, fruit, seeds, whatever it needs. And so ammonium is the more predominant form of nitrogen because ammonium in general promotes reproductive growth. So there, is, there are those seasonal cycles, and, and I'm sure as we come to understand different plants, we're going to see way more subtle differences. When exactly do they shift over from bacteria to properly balanced to vegetate to uh, reproductive growth? And then what happens to exudates once the plant has uh, gone into reproductive mode and all of its energy is going to um, growing seeds? That's the primary purpose of a plant is to make seeds, reproduce. No exudates to speak of are coming out of that root system once that plant actually goes into reproductive mode or very little. And so we just, we watch the activity of those organisms in the soil plummet. They're still there. The total biomass, whatever it was, when the plant stopped feeding them, that's still there, but the activity is going to drop to practically zero. Wow. And we can see that. Yep. We can see that the, the plants, like the tips of it are green, the rest of it's just standing stock. But you don't want to pull it because there's still stuff going on. You want to allow all of that stuff that's still left to get pulled down into the root system so that plant has a really good start next spring. And if you it's an the above ground too early and you're stressing the root system. It doesn't have the nutrients to get started the next spring, so it may die. And if it's an annual, you want all that energy, all those nutrients to go into that seed. Right. Uh, a properly dried down seed is so different from a seed that's, you know, shoddily done. Yep. You didn't give it the plant enough nutrition to make a good healthy seed, so it's lacking the viability within those seeds are going to be down around 30%, 10%, 2%, depending on whether you uh, mistreated your plant or not, whether you let the plant take care of its own life. I know better than my plants. I know that this plant needs eight tons per acre of urea today. That's like handing you uh, eight tons of pizza and saying that's all you get for the rest of the year. Good luck, uh, yeah, because uh, most of that pizza is not going to get eaten and it's going to get um, wiped out by something bad. We do the same thing to our plants in the, in the soil all the time. We load them down with all the nutrients that they need for the rest of the growing season. Right. Most of that's going to leach. Most of it's going to be lost from that soil long before your plant ever gets it. So that's the joy of that nutrient cycling system that the plant puts up. Every second of every day, the plant is getting supplied with the proper balance of all the nutrients that it requires. So it seems like when, when these processes are working, um, that nitrite is the most uh, ephemeral. Like it's like there for a minute and then it's not there. Um, yeah. And everything else, seems to be more present is that is that that's accurate you'll get pools of ammonium and nitrate developing where 
they're present in a measurable amount. Nitrite should not be present in a very high concentration because plants can't take it up. Nitrite is toxic to plants. So we want all those wonderful nitrifying bacteria present so that it is that fast converted from NH4 to NO3. When I was a student um, in college, in graduate school, taking plant, um, doing plant work, uh, the attitude was that in uh, vegetable soils and grassland soils, ammonia, ammonium did not exist. They could not measure it. And it wasn't until they started destroying soil function that they started to realize that, yes, ammonia, ammonium, sorry, NH4 occurs in grassland soils, and they were starting to see accumulations of NH4 in grassland soils. And it's like, what's going on? What's happening? It's because they had destroyed the nitrifying bacteria. And so NH4 was accumulating because the, the nitrifying bacteria were no longer present. Unless you have those organisms present, you can't convert NH4 into NO3 or NO2, NO2, NO3. So they did it through destroying life and soil. It's really hard on your um, um, vegetables. It's really hard on most uh, mid-successional grass species to have a large pool of NH4 starting to develop in the soil. You're going to push that soil to uh, shrubs and trees really, really rapidly because that's the form of nitrogen that shrubs and trees requires in H4. So NH4 is perennial and nitrate is annual. Is annual. And, and that's in, uh, and that's did in I just Europe. lose you? Oh, no, no, I'm here. Okay, you stop moving for about 30 seconds there. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> happens to my mom on Skype. Yeah, okay. So it is, and it's on your chart right there. I'll be sure to, to, to note that. Yeah, emphasize that. Um, and then people go overboard the wrong way, and they say shrubs need only ammonium. No, that's not what we said. It needs more ammonium than nitrate, but shrubs, good um, grasslands, need an equal amount of ammonium and nitrate. Equal. Shrubs need more ammonium than nitrate. Trees need almost only ammonium. Almost. It still needs that little bit of nitrate. So people just have problems understanding these gradients and that it's not all or nothing. Succession is occurs because nature has these balances of things. So we're starting to grasp nitrogen and how it works. Well, won't sulfur do exactly the same thing? Aren't there, oh no, your plants only take up SO4. I remember when I was back in graduate school where people were saying plants only take up NO3. 
that's the only soluble inorganic form. That's that what I'm seeing in up. some of these and some of these diagrams, and I'm like, what is going on here? And it's because they're thinking annuals, right? Or they're stuck in 1940s thinking. Yeah. They're they're way back there. Have they learned nothing in the last? Gosh, it's almost a century now, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Nothing has penetrated those skulls, which is why I often say the best thing that could happen to the USDA is that all the old guys would retire or die. I don't care. Go away. Because they're the ones that, that are preventing change from happening. Um, won't look at new ideas, won't look at new information. Well, you know, that generation, um, it, that generation is such a double-edged sword. I mean, there, there are such... And there's not dominant, but there's so many great minds in that generation. But then it seems like the majority of them just decided to destroy everything. And yeah, very military yeah. industrial complex. If kind you of don't think the way I think, then you should be killed. Yeah, yeah, what planting people. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and I think that that that's really. What, what needs to happen is we need a generational switch over and but at the same time we really need to not do the thing where we burn everything we need to honor those that have led us to this place where we uh, have the information that you're providing um, and yep. uh, yeah I'm really excited to introduce uh, the nitrogen cycle properly Great. Excellent. And it's just having more and more voices out there explaining to people how this works. So I really mm -hmm. appreciate you doing exactly that, helping spread the word. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. So that's the nitrogen cycle when we're looking at symbiotic organisms. Mm -hmm. Free living nitrogen fixers don't have as close an association with the plant. Mm -hmm. Free-living free nitrogen some. fixers, as long as there's a massive concentration of food for them to eat. So in the middle of a manure pile or um, a big, a real thick layer of decomposing plant material, you can get nitrogen fixation happening by these free-living nitrogen fixers. But the most common place for us to see free living nitrogen fixers is close not right on not actually attached to the root but close to the root so there's the root it's pumping out all these exudates and those nitrogen fixers are getting enough food that they start to grow and multiply and then it goes from one bacterium to two two to four sixteen eighty four a thousand ten thousand a million a billion in a very short period of time so now you've got a colony of those bacteria, the middle of the colony goes anaerobic. All those wonderful sugars coming in are going to um, be converted into amino acids. The bacteria get all of that. There's no flow back to the plant. So now you've got a colony of bacteria really elevated, high levels of nitrogen in there. It's going to attract a predator. So along comes an earthworm, yummy little treat for that um, earthworm. Now that earthworm is going to poop out all kinds of the soluble inorganic nutrients and hopefully right there, right around the root system and the plant's going to be going thank you, thank you, that's exactly what I needed, keep it coming, keep it coming. 
and then maybe not an earthworm, maybe a protozoa, maybe a nematode, but antiparadidurs releases those nutrients in a plant available form. So the plant can get nutrients back, it can get that nitrogen back. It's not a direct. Yeah, it's a little more loosey-goosey than where you have that direct association with something you're harboring within your own physical structure. So is this why non-nitrogen fixers are, uh, they've, they've recently I've heard that they've proven that non-nitrogen fixers fix nitrogen on an infinitesimal level. They could well be doing it. It's um, let's find the genetic material whereby they're producing those enzymes. Mm -hmm. it, again, it, then you it can, can trace often, it to, to the culprit, right? Yeah, you could actually find out where it's coming from because again, it's this problem of people don't think about the fact that this little bacterium is taking up the nutrients that it requires, and maybe it doesn't require nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And so now nitrogen is being elevated around uh, outside of that oh, bacteria. Oh, that is so awesome. And they're mistaking that increase in nitrogen as being nitrogen fixation. Blah. You know, it's soil is tricky because you got to think about more than just the one process you're focused on. Don't make the mistake of not paying attention to the whole system. Yeah, holistic thinking, absolutely. It's like those uh, the books that have been written about, uh, we were monitoring nitrogen nitrate concentration in the soil, and we put this soil into a bag, and we measured nitrate. We came back in two weeks, and we measured nitrate again, and nitrate had doubled. So calcium must have been converted. Okay, so the calcium was higher, Nitrate was lower at the beginning, so they the two things the two things they measured. <laughs> at the end of two weeks, they measured again and they switched like that. So they started here, went, and so the conclusion was yes. calcium must have been converted into nitrate in that soil. And I and I just read that and I kind of go, oh my god, um, total anecdotal. It's correlative. There's no mechanism that they postulate. How could... <laughs> it's like they never heard of Hume's causal theory. You know what I mean? It's basic. Yeah, basic. And if calcium was converted, if you actually pulled the electrons and the neutrons and the positrons off out of calcium in order to get rid of and have it be a, a nitrogen atom, there would have been five or six nuclear explosions that happened. <laughs> That's how much energy would have to have been released. So I, I, I no, no, bacteria and fungi are, are not pulling neutrons and positrons and electrons off of one mineral nutrient and turning it into another. But there were big books written about that. We have the science that proves. And wow. You still see science being done like that. It's just insane. You know, A caused B. Where's your data? Where's your mechanism? Explain to me how that can work. Or, sorry, that's correlative research.
I love this. You're rewriting all my years of being like disappointed with science and being like, well, I loved science until I went to science class. And, and you know, now, I mean, ever since I started on the path with permaculture and I've been able to find all these things, um, it's really been making science not just understandable, but science vital, vital yeah. to my life. We have to understand the mechanism. None of this correlative stuff. Because I saw a footprint in the snow and my mother was murdered, therefore, that's who murdered my mother. And no, well, you got to show how that footprint relates to murder. So we've got so much of that kind of garbage science to clear out. Um, and then we got to be looking for the mechanisms. And that takes some pretty fine understanding and observation and it takes some pretty elegant experiments in order to figure out what the mechanism is got to do it because if we want to stop fighting with nature we got to figure out how she works so we can work with her and not against her absolutely okay so i think we have most of the nitrogen cycle Yes, I've gone back, I went back and I removed several things um, that were not possible. <laughs> so, is nitrate the only form that can be leached from the soil? No. Um, you can leach ammonium, you can leach nitrite, nitrate, you can leach proteins, you can leach amino acids, they are capable of being in solution as well. Anything that can be dissolved in water can leach. You want to distinguish organic compounds from inorganic compounds because it's much, much easier for organic compounds to find a surface and attach and stay there. Whereas ions, um, inorganic ions, positively or negatively charged, they stick for maybe two weeks if you're lucky and then they're gone again. So leaching it will be continuous with the inorganic soluble materials whereas with organic materials they're usually going to get stuck to a surface and stay there. Okay that's awesome. It's like a you know you always have to differentiate between insoluble humic acid and soluble humic acid because there are humic acids that will move into solution they've got enough positively and negatively charged sites that they'll actually dissolve in water and they're leachable it's just usually they're going to get stuck somewhere along the line because they're such complex molecules they're so huge they're big that you have to have big air passageways and hallways to allow humic or fulvic or ulmic acids to actually leach. Can you speak to that um, whole thing about uh, how they're saying that um, humic acids are a product of the testing mechanism and it's not really in the soil? Because I mean, I understood the part about it just gets finer and finer, which makes total sense to me. And then, the, and then, 
the, the finer it is, the better it is for the soil because the plants can uptake it easier because it's finer and the soil life can build finer structures with it, you know, all those kinds of things, right? But they, they forgot all about poop. Bacteria and fungi produce poop. Just like any time a fungus takes in an organic molecule, it's going to pull off, use its enzymes to pull off the parts it wants. But there's usually something left that's toxic to the bacterium or the fungus. It can't utilize this. It's a set of um, bonds that that organism does not make the enzymes to break down. And therefore, it's going to poop it back out. Well, in that vacuole, where all that waste material is accumulating, there's lots of um, chemical um, interactions going on. There are bonds being made. And so you're going to get a simple carbon chain bonded to another carbon chain, and then there'll be another and another, maybe some amino acids, maybe some nitrate, phosphate. There's all kinds of these chemical interactions occurring in the waste collection um, vacuole. And so it's making more condensed materials more complex. So the poop that actually comes out from a bacterium or a fungus is way more complex than anything inside that bacteria or fungus. That's how humus is made. And Yes, the chemical extraction methods that people have used to precipitate humic acids or fulvic acids so they can collect them and weigh them or measure them. Yes, that's an artifact. It produces some pretty bizarre artifacts when you do that. You're causing condensation of things that were not condensed together in the soil but it does not negate the fact that humics and fulvics are out there. So when you think of a compost pile, it starts out with plant material that you can identify. There are no humics, fulvics, omics, none of that more complex plant material is in there. Um, as you start to see decomposition, as that temperature takes off, as the bacteria and fungi start doing their thing, you can notice that the color of the pile starts to become a darker and darker and darker brown color. As that plant material is decomposed, there's the poop from the bacteria and fungi being released into that pile. And so we're starting to develop the fulvics, the humics, the omics, all of those complex materials. The dark color associated with soil, with that A horizon, with the B horizon, with organic material, that dark color is a result of those bacteria and fungi releasing those more complex condensed compounds. So if you don't like to extract those things and produce some artifacts when you use strong acids and strong bases to extract them, then come up with some other measure of these complex carbon compounds but you cannot dismiss them. They are there, they're present, and they are developing over time. So I think those guys made a real mistake when they said um, humics and fulvics don't exist. That's Absolutely so not true. I know Toby Hemingway said publicly that he's going to rewrite his book because of that. 
Uh, that's Daddy. And that's his problem because <laughs> he's he's jumping the gun. He yeah. has to sit back and think. Uh, those strong acids and those strong bases are the way that people have extracted those complex compounds for a century or more. And just because those extracting agents are causing some artifacts doesn't mean that the complex compounds don't exist. So someone needs to whack them upside the head and make them think. <laughs> you know, I think that's, for me, all this stuff, if I can't root it in a reality that makes sense, that is workable, that fits, you know, um, I just don't get it. And yeah. I, I'm not going to guess. I'm not going to pretend. I just don't get it. And until I get it, um, I, when I get it, I can explain it to my, you know, my, my nine-year-old son. Um, yep. And he may not get it, but I can at least explain it. <laughs> <laughs> when he puts a few more of the building blocks or the jigsaw puzzle together, he will be able to explain it. But I, too, I have to have an explanation. The mechanism has to be explained to me or I'm left kind of going... I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's a trust issue that I have with teachers, you know, because they just, my whole life, it's just trust me. And it's like, hmm. This is what it says in the book. Really? What, what book was that? Could you show me that book? Um, I want to see the data. It's like uh, in the world of biodynamics. They've got that one book, you know, uh, what are weeds or something. Okay. Um, and they always point to that as saying, these plants are elevated in these nutrients. Okay, where's your data? Where did the data in that book come from? It's just a table and there's a bunch of X's in there and there's a little bit of explanation, but no explanation of the methods. How do they actually measure the nutrients in those, in those plant materials? There weren't methods for measuring those things in those plants at the time that that book was written. Huh. So how does he know that it's ele elevated in manganese or molybdenum or whatever he was talking about? Where's his data? He quotes no sources. There are no references. He didn't talk about any, uh, any extraction methods. He didn't talk about his methodology, how he measured those nutrients. So my only conclusion is it's bullshit. He fabricated it out of, I don't know, he had a dream or something. He put his hands over it and went, mm, yes, this is high in nitrate. Wacko. And I've challenged the biodynamic world over and over and over again to show me where those data came from. That's the end of the tape. I ran out of tape right then. And so the rest of our discussion is in our heads. And I will tell you that this discussion about biodynamic went on to talk about the many amazing farmers that are practicing biodynamic farming, but also the fact that it hasn't really taken off because people who are trying it um, are missing certain scientific elements to prove, to measure, to, uh, 
to go through all the different Steiner techniques and figure out, you know, what is happening when it does work, what's the mechanism, and how can we control that mechanism, enhance it, isolate it, those kinds of things. So she wasn't um, just taking out a you know, baby with the bathwater. We were, um, we went on to discuss how uh, with some of these new techniques, especially with the measuring uh, techniques that Elaine is working with, or the methodologies that she is setting up, uh, they're going to be able to spread biodynamic processes better because they're going to be able to prove it, show why it works, how it works, show the mechanisms, and then be able to teach it to farmers so that they can be more effective with it. Because um, I know, and I've heard, I've heard this, and she had too, and we discussed this, many farmers starting out in biodynamics struggle because they feel like there's not that much of a... Um, a uh, plan to work from uh, and some of the key components, key connections uh, that biological farming really covers, as Lane talks about, um, aren't covered there. And so that's that. I don't want anyone going away feeling sore uh, from the biodynamic community. She's really challenging them to clarify some of the discoveries that are there and also, you know, be ready to throw out things that don't work, you know. So that's where she was coming from. I know it starts off uh, rather, you know, fiery as she can be, which is wonderful because we need that fire. Um, and it is such an honor to work with her and to catch some of that fire and, you know, get to work. Uh, we're, I mean, we're building these diagrams. Uh, I mean, they're for me, they're for her, they're for everyone um, because there's just no good diagrams out there. And I'm, I'm building this all into the Permaculture Student 2, the high school textbook, because you know what? Those Common Core textbooks, which are Monsanto, you know, the Gates Foundation behind Common Core is, also owns, you know, Monsanto, uh, they, they don't include all this critical information. They're cutting out key components. Uh, and you go to the, you know, Water Cycle on the EPA website, and they don't even have condensation on there. So there's a lot of you know monkey business going on. So it's really wonderful to have a hard-nosed scientist who uh, is saying, "Show it to me, prove it to me." Uh, I'm not going to just you know honor the fact that you have a degree like me, and we'll just wink, wink, and nudge, nudge, and yeah, we'll just keep going with the game. She very early on said, "Yeah," she talked about why, what's going on here, and that's. We need to do at all levels of farming, of our society, of governance even, you know. We just need to start tilling this soil and uh, uh, bring or bring soil life back into that soil, you know. And that's probably more appropriate. <laughs> I appreciate her and I appreciate you sticking it out and listening. Um, we also uh, went on to discuss more about the nitrogen cycle and we, we worked out a bunch of different things specifically around the uh, spectrum of pH, the spectrum of fungal dominant, and also the ranges of trees, shrubs, bushes, and vines for what their preference is, whether it's ammonium or nitrate, because that is above you know, pH 7, you have uh, nitrates, and below that you have ammonium and when you have a balance 
uh, a perfect balance of uh, of a fungal bacterial of ammonium uh, and nitrate what you have is perfect conditions for um, row crops so I have a, uh, a diagram that I'm actually right in the middle of working on um, and I'm gonna release that too as soon as I can uh, a lot of the work we're doing is unique and it's really exciting to be part of it uh, and to be making it understandable to me because I know that once it's understandable to me it's understandable to everyone else um, I maybe that's my like skill uh, as a teacher is that I get confused uh, but when I understand it I understand it thoroughly and in such a way that everyone else can understand it um, so I love doing this. I love translating the complicated stuff into stuff that's understandable because it's, it's my understanding. I mean, the books that I'm making are my mental maps of, of all of this. So it's a thrill, it's an absolute thrill. And also it's another aspect to this, this thrill, you know, is the fact that you all are going to buy this book or get the digital or borrow from a friend or whatever and you guys are gonna see this, or you're gonna see excerpts online. You guys are gonna see this and you're gonna instantly get it on a different level that you've never gotten before. And you're gonna see that it has a real context. And suddenly all these things that were dead in our understanding from high school and middle school and college even are gonna to leap to life. And they're gonna find the context and it's gonna flash out right before our, our, our mind's eye. And that's what's happening with me. I'm literally seeing the world, just like what the start when I took my PDC, the world, you know, jumped out at me. I'm like, holy cow, there's trees. The, there are all these different trees and I don't know what they are. And now I'm like, oh, those are oaks. And you know, that's black locust back there. Oh, there's a, a walnut over there. You know, I can see the trees now. It's the same sort of thing. There, there, there are specific things that are happening uh, in the soil biology that is hap precipitating that, right? And so I'm realizing, you know, all these things that relate to a formula that like, just like the formulas we made in high school that we found really boring and we, what is the point of this? And they, those tie in deeper to, you know, the ion exchanges and the electrons and protons and all that. And for me, I wanted to understand those things in high school. Oh boy. I felt like there was something wrong with me. And I feel like I'm not alone. I feel like a lot of people felt like there was something wrong with them, that they just didn't get it. They weren't, they, they just weren't good enough. There's something wrong with me. I was born wrong. And it's just not real. That's just a, a, a bad teaching. That's bad, um, bad curriculum writing, bad textbook writing. Uh, they've been telling us narratives, you know, things that hold in your mind well, but aren't necessarily really true. Um, those kinds of things, and it's just more of the same as busy work in school, and it's time to change that. And we're gonna change that, and people are excited about it, because uh, it's gonna be available. And the, the reality is there's nothing available like this. I, I want you to, you know, maybe re-listen to this podcast again. Um, because I, I had to listen to it twice and I'm probably gonna listen to it more um, because there's a lot of information she covers in this and I, I have you know as I re-listen to it I have all these questions that I'm gonna go back to her and ask her again and hopefully I, I can record that and share it again and we can compile a series of these uh, informational sessions with her 
that uh, are tied directly to the book so that people can get excited about the book and start learning about all this stuff now. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you haven't bought my book, you can go to thepermaculturestudent.com. And if you want to join my online course, know that all these videos I'm making are available to everyone in the online course. And the course just keeps growing. So people who join my course, they pay one price, and then they just stay part of that course. And I keep adding videos. Um, I keep adding new materials. And it just keeps getting better and better. So from Permaculture Tonight, have a wonderful week.